Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jonah Gelbach, Professor of Law at Berkeley Law at University of California. We will discuss his draft article, Estimation Evidence, which will be published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jonah. Thanks very much, Brian. Delighted to be here. Yeah, look, I'm I'm glad to have you on. This is like a fascinating paper because it kind of sits at the intersection of civil procedure and and evidence law, and kind of illustrates how intertwined the two um, the two disciplines really really are. And um, and I, I really I really enjoyed reading it. But I will admit it was a, it was a little m- even more technical <laughs> than some of the papers. Uh, I usually talk about on this show. So I want to kind of walk through some of the core ideas so that listeners uh, have a kind of a baseline for understanding the really, I think, subtle and important point that that you're making here. Um, Yeah. So in the paper, you focus on how courts should use statistical estimation evidence when deciding uh, motions for a judgment uh, as a matter of law under the federal rules of civil procedure. So I I was wondering if you could start by explaining what what exactly is statistical estimation evidence? Sure. So um, I'll note as well, and I imagine we'll get there, but uh, that the the paper also discusses uh, quite a bit the issues that surround admissibility in in court of expert testimony about such evidence. The standards and the issues are a bit different. Um, I guess I should say the analysis is a bit different um, in the two uh, places, but the uh, but the result turns out to be pretty similar. Um, so, having said that, what do I mean by statistical estimation evidence? Um, what I don't mean is the kind of statistical evidence, quote unquote, that people have traditionally meant in the evidence law literature when they've talked about problems like the blue bus problem or the gate crasher problem. Um, In those problems, it's basically taken as given that the probability numbers used are, for lack of a better word, true or accurate. So in the blue bus problem, it's assumed that 80% or 90% or whatever telling one uses of the buses in town are, are blue Uh, and the rest are red. And what's at issue is, are we going to allow nothing but that fact to uh, be the basis for a determination that the blue bus company was the, uh, was the, the, the uh, one that's liable for a a bus accident when there's testimony that the bus in question was blue and no other evidence. That's the conventional use of the term statistical evidence in the evidence law literature. I don't mean that. What I mean is, quantitative estimates, which may be estimates of probabilities or estimates of some other object of interest. So for example, in antitrust law, you would care about the impact on prices. That's probably not a probability estimate, but some sort of quantitative estimate in which hypothesis testing is likely to be used in one way or another. Statistical hypothesis testing is likely to be used to quantify the strength of the of the estimates in question, which is to say to determine whether they should be treated as if they're, um, you know, there's sufficient evidence of the phenomenon in question that they come into evidence in court and or a reasonable jury or fact finder could find for the proponent of such evidence on the merits. 
Okay. So I think it would be helpful to sort of use an example to illustrate. And if I recall correctly, in the, in the paper, you use the example of the, I think it was Lipitor, Lipitor, um, Lipitor litigation and evidence about the likelihood that it caused diabetes. So maybe you could describe that particular statistical estimation evidence, sort of how that worked and sort of like the different ways that we might think about evaluating the evidence with respect to its reliability. Sure. So that case involved a, a an MDL, a multi-district litigation in which the maker of uh, Lipitor was uh, sued by a thousands of, of people, uh, most or all of whom I believe were women, um, alleging that taking Lipitor as instructed by their doctors and, you know, as, as recommended by the manufacturer led to uh, the onset of type 2 diabetes. The, uh, these cases were consolidated. You can't, can't bring them as a class action due to other line of case law we're not going to get into today. Um, and so they were brought in, uh, sort of consolidated as a multi-district litigation in, in federal court uh, in South Carolina. And a, a really important question in the consolidated pretrial proceedings turned out to be whether the plaintiffs, and here I mean plural, um, the, the expert that the plaintiffs steering committee had uh, presented on the uh, issue of causation, general causation, in other words, does Lipitor ever cause type 2 diabetes? Uh, this expert testified that uh, about a, a randomized control trial study uh, that, uh, that showed that uh, 3% of uh, the uh, folks who had taken Lipitor uh, ultimately, or at least within the, obviously within the time period of the study, uh, had experienced type 2 diabetes incidents. In other words, they didn't have it at the beginning of the study, and then they did. Uh, they were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes uh, by uh, some point before the end of the study. Uh, by comparison, 2.6% uh, of those who received the placebo in the randomized trial, right, the, they were the control group in the Lipitor study, uh, uh, developed type 2 diabetes. So the the difference in incidence was 0.4 percentage points. In other words, 3% minus 2.6%. The expert, this is, I should be clear, this is at a particular dosage, namely 10 milligrams, which is a low dose in context. And so the question uh, that the district court and then ultimately the, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals addressed was whether the expert in question uh, could be allowed to testify that there was a 10 milligram, uh, that, pardon me, that there was a causal effect of Lipitor taken at the 10 milligram uh, dosage on the basis of the evidence I just described. It was a relatively large randomized trial. So even though the difference, um, 3% compared to 2.6%, uh, sounds like it might be kind of small in substantive terms, it's about a 15% increase um, uh, for those who took Lipitor compared to those who were assigned not to, um, it's a sufficiently large study that uh, one might think that that was a uh, that that was a a a, a, a real effect. Um, mm -hmm. And then the so that's the quantitative estimate um, at issue. That's what I would call statistical estimation evidence. 
Um, and then the issues that arise that my paper is, uh, the issues at which my paper uh, are directed uh, are the ones related to, well, should we allow this expert to testify that this evidence is sufficient uh, to conclude that there really was a causal effect of Lipitor on type 2 diabetes? Okay. Okay. So in the context in which the court had to decide whether or not to admit that particular expert testimony, what's the abstract legal standard? In other words, what question is the court supposed to be asking in that context? Okay. So uh, let's unpack that just a little bit. If we imagine for a moment that the evidence had been admitted at trial, then or, or, or were admissible anyway, had been determined to be admissible for trial, then there's no question that the standard for the fact finder at trial, whether through jury trial or bench trial, would be the preponderance standard. The question of whether the testimony should be admissible um, if, uh, if it didn't involve expert testimony would be controlled by a couple of different federal rules of evidence um, one is Rule 401. That's the, the lowest bar here, which just says that the evidence has to uh, show that a, a, a fact of consequence in the litigation is more probable or less probable as a result of knowing the, the evidence. In other words, you'd change your mind in one direction or the other if you knew the evidence compared to what you would think without knowing the evidence. It's an incredibly low bar. Everybody understands that to be an incredibly low bar. There are a bunch of other evidentiary rules in, uh, out there. The, the most important of them uh, is uh, outside the expert evidence con, uh, uh, context here would be Rule 403, which says, uh, well, you can't allow um, even relevant evidence. Uh, you, judges would be uh, justified in excluding even relevant evidence if there were uh, some risk of or sufficiently high risk of um confusing the jury or leading to unfair prejudice against uh, one of the parties um, and a couple of other things. That, but those are the main ones for our purposes. What's really important in this context is the body of law that surrounds um, expert evidence and expert testimony. And that's encapsulated by Federal Rule of Evidence 702. It's often referred to as the as Daubert uh, after one of the cases that um, that really developed these issues. Um, and uh, there's such a thing as the Daubert trilogy. There were three cases in a short period of time. The other two were uh, uh, Joyner and uh, Kumho Tyre. Um, the three of those cases together, the law in those cases is essentially adopted in an amendment to federal rule of evidence 702 so that the current rule that exists uh, essentially embodies all of those considerations. So you ask the question, what's the standard um, for admissibility here? Well, the, the expert's testimony, it was Dr. Singh was the name of the es expert in this case, um, would have to, first of all, be relevant under Rule 401. So it would have to be enough to change what a, you know, a reasonable observer might think after seeing the, uh, seeing the evidence. Uh, it would have to be not too confusing or unfairly prejudicial to, to the uh, other side. In this case, that would be the defendant. Um, and then it would have to pass this Rule 702 standard. Um, the, the main things there are that the uh, the the expert himself be the sort of person with the sort of expertise who could uh, provide information that's helpful to the jury by um, explaining things that are outside the scope of a person of a lay person's uh, understanding of these issues, um, and then also a, a, a slew of issues um, related to reliability uh, of the uh, the objects of the expert's testimony um, and. 
the requirement that the expert, you know, consider all the evidence that should fairly be considered in forming his opinion, um, applied reliable methods to the reliable evidence uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, I think, useful to understand that the preponderance standard that comes up for what that, that's at issue for whether the evidence would be sufficient once admitted to find for a party has to be in mind when we think about the admissibility standard under Rule 702 and, and the body of law related to, um, to, to, to experts, uh, because it can't be helpful to the jury to know uh, a piece of evidence if that evidence wouldn't uh, have any impact on the determination of the case uh, and vice versa. Okay. So as I understand it, courts typically in evaluating this kind of evidence use like a statistical significance sort of approach, which is common within the various scientific fields that the evidence is being developed. And as I understand it in your paper, you're arguing that in this context, that's actually not the right standard to use in evaluating the evidence uh, for, for for this particular use. So could you understand, like, explain how that standard works, why you think it's the wrong standard, and what standard ought to be used instead, at least as a as a legal matter? Sure. Um, th- that's, a, that's a lot right there. So let me, let me try and take it in pieces and mm-hmm. please do let me know if I've uh, neglected to attend to, to, to part of it. Um, so uh, the first point I want to make is that there's a lot of variation in what courts say they're actually doing when it comes to these kinds of questions with respect to statistical evidence and hypothesis testing. And largely, I think that's because um, there are many judges out there who are very, very smart people who work really hard, really want to understand these things, uh, but they're just not trained in the issues. And so uh, they don't necessarily grasp them, and they sometimes make conceptual errors in describing what conventional approaches to hypothesis testing, which are right, I'm critical of the use of those conventional approaches in this paper, what those conventional approaches entail and what they actually uh, tell us. Um, So let me take a step back and describe what conventional hypothesis testing, by which I mean what's often called null hypothesis significance testing uh, entails. And then I'll get to the other parts. So uh, for null hypothesis statistical uh, significance testing, pardon me, um, it's helpful to imagine for a moment that there are only two possible uh, states of the world. One is uh, that the uh, let, let's stay with the Lipitor example. One is that Lipitor causes uh, type 2 diabetes, and the other uh, is that um, uh, that it doesn't. So if it doesn't cause the type 2 diabetes, then, uh, and in fact, it, when we say it doesn't cause, we also mean it doesn't reduce the incidence. It's not beneficial to people who have uh, taken Lipitor. It just has no impact in either direction. So if we start from that perspective, that zero impact is what's usually denoted the null hypothesis in these kinds of discussions. So null just mean, you know, N-U-L-L meaning nothing, you know, no, no impact here. Um, the null hypothesis, uh, under the null hypothesis here, uh, we know that any difference in the incidence of type 2 diabetes in the randomized control trial I talked about, which is known as the ASCOT LLA trial, 
any observed difference is just the result of random variation. You know, you, you get a sample of people, you give some, some of them Lipitor, or you give others uh, a placebo, and it's random which people get which. Um, even if there's truly no causal effect of Lipitor on diabetes for anyone, the, you know, sometimes by happenstance, there's going to be more people in one group or the other who, who get type 2 uh, diabetes. That's just the nature of taking finite samples in the real world. Under the null hypothesis, um, the uh, extent to which there should be a difference in the incidence of type 2 diabetes um, is uh, going to be uh, knowable in a large enough sample. Um, th there's uh, something called the central limit theorem, which basically tells us that the, uh, the difference in the proportion uh, of people who, uh, who, have, uh, who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes after uh, receiving either Lipitor or the placebo uh, is just very unlikely to be more than a, a certain amount. And that certain amount depends on the underlying uh, incidence in, in the group's uh, of type 2 diabetes in general. And, um, and so I can't quantify that without knowing some more about that. Um, but null hypothesis significance testing works by saying, well, let's look at the actual difference that we observe in the data and let's figure out whether that difference is more or less than um, the, uh, uh, a particular difference based on this probability distribution that I just told you we can, we can determine. And so the structure of the, and, and, and if it is more than that, then we say, oh, that would be very surprising to observe if there truly were no impact of Lipitor on type 2 diabetes. So the structure of the idea is, we say, well, if there were no impact of Lipitor on type 2 diabetes, how likely would it be to observe more than an X percentage point difference? And as long as the uh, anytime the uh, the likelihood of observing more than that difference um, uh, isn't too great, we determine well there must not have been uh, any any difference. Okay, so what's important about that and problematic, I argue, and, and I'm hardly the first. I want to emphasize this. There's an old line of criticism of uh, of this approach to causation testing, both inside and outside the law. The problem is that you notice I never said anything in that discussion about the likelihood of observing the data if indeed there were some causal effect of Lipitor on type 2 diabetes. In other words, it might be really unlikely to observe what we actually see if there's no effect of Lipitor, but it might be even more unlikely to observe what we actually see if there was, you know, a relatively small effect of Lipitor or, or, or some more moderate-sized effect. The nature of legal proof is supposed to be comparing the plausibility or the, or the you know, the, the, the likelihood or the probability. We can discuss or not discuss the technical differences between those to the extent that there are any, but it's supposed to be about comparing the, the probability of the plaintiff's story um, given the evidence to the probability of the defendant's story given the evidence. What I've just described to you is an approach that starts by assuming, in this case, the defendant's story is right, and then asks, how unlikely would it be to observe the actual evidence? But then it never compares that to anything having to do with the story that the plaintiff would tell. So there's two ways in which it's problematic. One is it asks about the probability of the data given the hypothesis that there's an effect or not. 
rather than asking about the probability that one or the other hypothesis is right, given the data. Mm. Okay. And then the second problem is that it just never even engages anything to do with the probability of observing the data if the plaintiff were right. So it isn't comparative in the way that the law is on its face supposed to be comparative. And it uses the wrong object anyway in doing the halfway analysis. So it's got these two problems. The alternative would be, or the, the most sort of your natural alternative would be to use uh, a method or a collection of methods known as Bayesian analysis. And there's such a thing as Bayesian hypothesis testing. And my paper presents a set of approaches that would allow us or that do allow us uh, to compare the probability uh, that one side or the other is right, given the data we actually observe. And if you think about it for a second, you realize that's what courts usually ask plaintiffs to prove in court. So in a case that has nothing to do with statistical evidence, let's say a garden variety, you know, personal injury trial where somebody has slipped on the, uh, on the sidewalk. And the question is, did the defendant take enough care in, um, you know, in, in shoveling the walk on time after, uh, uh, after a snowstorm happened, we would ask people on the jury to determine, given the evidence that you've heard at trial, do you think it's more likely that the defendant failed to take due care or more likely that the defendant did take due care. And in just that sense, my argument is we ought to be asking people on the jury, if a case ever got that far, is it more likely given the evidence that Lipitor causes or doesn't cause diabetes? That's very different from the structure of what we ask um, if we use null hypothesis significance testing. The approach of null hypothesis significance testing, and I'll shut up and let you ask another question. <laughs> the approach of null hypothesis statistical significance testing, which is basically imported from scholarly use of statistics, particularly in the social sciences, into court. That's how it got there. It's, it's not like anybody ever said, what's the best way to use statistical uh, estimation evidence in court? And then wrongly wound up with this. It's just what scholars often do in what's known as the frequentist paradigm of hypothesis testing. It's controversial among scholars whether that approach or the Bayesian approach is the better one. But on the face of it, what we say we're supposed to be doing in court clearly uh, supports the Bayesian uh, approach rather than the frequentist. Yeah, yeah. So that was a lot. But if if I understand that and and your paper correctly essentially the observation is that the standard approach that courts have been using is putting way too high a burden on the introduction of the evidence like it's almost like saying you don't just have to show some likelihood that this took place you have to like prove it took place before you can introduce the evidence in the first place and that's like way too high of of a standard and that the kind of evidence you're talking about here, the kind of statistical evidence you're talking about is actually like particularly well suited to this Bayesian weighting of probabilities approaches. Is that right? Yeah, I think all of that was relatively well said. I'd, I'd offer an amendment to it, which is I would say whether we say that courts have been holding plaintiffs to too high a standard, usually it's plaintiffs, it could be defendants, but you know, people presenting statistical evidence in order to establish 
uh, uh, causation or, or other related proposition, um, whether we say it's too high a standard is a question that can be answered only by reference to a choice of evidentiary threshold. In other words, a standard of, of proof or a standard of evidence. Um, and it might well be that we should demand that plaintiffs meet a very high standard because otherwise we'll get too many lawsuits or, you know, we'll, we'll do something unjust by transferring uh, too many resources from uh, potential defendants to potential plaintiffs. There might be all kinds of other economic reasons to worry about those things. I have absolutely no problem with any of those claims, at least for purposes of this paper. I'm not sure they're right, but they could be. Um, my argument is rather that if we say we're applying the preponderance standard, then we're necessarily holding parties to a much stronger evidentiary standard than um, what we say the law actually entails. There's a whole other part of the paper that's about the considerations that are at issue when uh, courts, particularly federal courts, rather than legislatures, are, are the ones making those sorts of determinations. But those are fundamentally normative determinations about the relative um, you know, the, the relative burdens we want to place on folks who are likely to be plaintiffs versus uh, versus defendants. Um, they're separate from the underlying or, or I should say that the sort of the overlying question of how we should use statistics once we have determined what the standard is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you used in the paper this concept of the plaintiff's most favorable juror to identify or to explain why the alternative standard you're describing is is consistent with sort of the preponderance standard we say that we're using and the alternative standard is not. And why, if we assume that plaintiff's most favorable juror sort of argument, it shows that the evidence would always be admissible um, when it satisfies the standard you're, you're talking about. Why is that? Great question. So, uh, two points to, to, to focus on here um, with respect to this plaintiff's most favor favorable juror concept. Um, the first is that in this paper, I don't purport to be providing advice to a fact finder at the merit stage. In other words, I'm not trying to tell a juror how to answer the question who should win on the issue to which statistical evidence can speak. I'm not telling a judge hey, if it's a bench trial, here's how you should choose for whom to find. What's important here is to recognize that at key procedural moments, namely motion for judgment as a matter of law, uh, which happens at the end of a trial, um, or at least after uh, one side has, uh, at least one side has been fully heard, or summary judgment, which happens before trial and is much more common. Uh, as, I, as I know, you, you're a fellow civil procedure professor, I know you know that. Um, so at these pre-judgment moments, the court isn't supposed to terminate the case, even when a defendant, usually in this case, this kind of case, um, moves for judgment, unless it concludes that no reasonable juror could find uh, for the plaintiff on the issue at hand. So the body of law that's been built up around this notion of what a reasonable juror could and couldn't do holds that we're supposed to be judges are supposed to be drawing all reasonable inferences uh, on contested matters in favor of the non-moving party when these motions are brought up. And in, in my hypotheticals, we're, we're mostly talking about plaintiffs who are the non-moving parties that are responding to defendants' motions for judgment. So the question is, what constitutes 
drawing all reasonable inferences in favor of uh, in favor of the plaintiff with respect to statistical evidence. And here is uh, where I think that the approach that I'm proposing, and I should say, by the way, that the approach I'm proposing comes uh, has also been discussed in a paper that I've uh, co-authored with a more technical paper I've co-authored with Bruce Kobayashi uh, at the George Mason University uh, Scalia uh, Law School. Um, so anybody who's interested in the math can go look at that paper. I'd be happy to provide uh, links. So where the approach really shines is it provides um, it provides a way to think about what it means to be the most favorable um, uh, uh, set of inferences, uh, to draw the most favorable set of inferences for the plaintiff. And that involves this plaintiff's most favorable uh, juror concept. And simply put, the plaintiff's most favorable juror is the one um, who would walk into court with beliefs uh, that tend to line up in a certain way. And I know we're a little bit low on time, so I'm not going to go into great detail. People can read the paper. Um, but with beliefs um, that are especially favorable to the plaintiff so that when the data that are observed in a study like the Lipitor one we've talked about, when those data are introduced to trial, such a juror would give the maximum benefit of the doubt, essentially, to the uh, to the plaintiff uh, um having seen uh, those data. Um, and that notion of the plaintiff's most favorable juror turns out to solve the primary problem with the use of Bayesian uh, methods um, from a conceptual standpoint. We haven't actually addressed this yet today, um, but that primary problem is that Bayesian uh, analysis requires the specification of what are called prior beliefs. And in this context, they essentially have to be subjective beliefs, meaning they're not based on evidence that everybody has seen. It's just, you know, some jurors walk into the courtroom being more favorably predisposed to plaintiffs, others more favorably predisposed to defendants, et cetera. Um, and uh, the thing that holds Bayesian analysis back, even though I think basically everybody agrees it's the right way to do things if you knew the answer to this thing, the thing that holds everything back, holds Bayesian analysis back is the difficulty of figuring out how to specify these prior beliefs, the pre-evidence beliefs in a way that isn't completely, um, you know, subjective and, and essentially in our context, lawless. Now, the most favorable juror idea says, hey, listen, if what we're directing our attention at is not who should win on the merits, because it's a pretrial motion after all, but rather, could any juror who's not crazy find for the plaintiff? Well, my argument is that actually gives us a lot of information about the kinds of prior beliefs that jurors might actually have. And it turns out, the argument goes, it actually gives us enough information to implement Bayesian reasoning at these very important pretrial milestone moments. Right, right. And the one thing that was really kind of helpful for me in conceptualizing this, do you really point out that like in a, in most evidentiary contexts like this, you know, sort of the Bayesian tools are really more like heuristics for thinking about or evaluate evaluating in a holistic sense. Like yeah, what's my prior of... belief about the probability that the defendant took due care in shoveling yeah. the walk, yeah, right? Yeah. That, who knows what that means, right? Yeah. But in this case, it's like you're, we actually literally have exactly the data that you need to answer the question in a scientific way. That's right. And I, 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 I Hesitate a little bit to use the word scientific because I think social fair, fair, fair. Yeah. <laughs> overplaying. 
<laughs> but um, <laughs> fine, fair enough. There are social scientists by by our own designation, um, and you know all this travels under uh, the reference manual for scientific evidence and so on. So um, so fair enough. Um, yeah, I would say it's it allows us to to systematize the analysis at least in these areas that involve uh, quantitative uh, evidence and and. Uh, there's a section of the paper that engages uh, at least one sort of one particular philosophical critique of uh, of of that approach, and, and one that's sort of more about doctrinal law considerations and um, and practical law considerations uh, than about philosophical critiques. Uh, and my argument is: look, even if you folks are are completely right in general, uh, we don't even really need to engage the criticisms that you raise about the Bayesian model of evidence. You know, the Bayesian theoretical model of evidence law writ large, because um, because the 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 objects we're interested in here really are quantifiable in probabilistic terms. I mean, that is the whole point. We're already using probabilistic analysis uh, to you know to to answer these questions. We're just doing it, I argue, in 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 a less good way than we could. So why okay. not do? Yeah. So, so there was one thing that I was a little confused about, and I'm sure it's in the paper or maybe it's in the paper and I totally missed it or didn't understand it. But like what happens in this context if there are multiple conflicting studies introduced by different parties? Like can, can you combine them together or parse them somehow and still come up with like the quote unquote right answer about what should happen? Or what do you do? What what should a court do in that context? That's a great question. So I do address that question um, to to some extent, but um, but it's easy to miss it because it's sort of in the middle of a whole. That those are trees in the middle of a of a much larger forest. So um, the first point I would say is that Federal Rule of Evidence seven hundred two B says that the testimony in question by an expert has to be based on uh, sufficient uh, evidence, uh, su- sufficient information, sufficient facts and data, I think is the, the phrase. I don't have the rule right in front of me. Um, there's a note, uh, an advisory committee note to the uh, to the the rule that says by sufficient, what we mean is quantitative, not, not qualitative. So we're not saying legal sufficiency in the judgment as a matter of law, you know, federal rule of civil procedure, Rule 50 cents, but rather what we literally mean, like you have to have paid attention to enough of the data that are out there. So think about an expert who walks into court and testifies about only half of the studies that have been done in an area. Uh, and you, you'd be stunned to know that if somebody did that, they might choose only the half that tended to favor their side, right? Um, so I think it would be an entirely reasonable thing for uh, for the the judge, you know, in response to a, a a motion to exclude that testimony, to say absolutely, that testimony is based on not enough evidence, and um, you have to take it all into account. Okay, so having said that, how do I say? And I, this is what I take to be the main thrust of your question: How do I say one should take multiple studies or, or multiple estimates into account? There's an appendix in the to the paper that handles this um, handles the math of this, but the short answer to it is, what I say is that uh, the expert should take the uh, estimates from all those different studies uh, and essentially average them um, and then apply the rest of the uh, the, uh, the machinery that I uh, propose in, in this paper to the averaged estimate. Now, it's a little bit more involved than that because it's probably the case that the best way to construct this averaged estimate would involve weighting with 
you know, weights in a way that are, uh, that, that are constructed in a way that depends on the variance uh, of each of the estimators and so on. So I'm going to leave out those details, but I'm just going to say um, that uh, it's possible to construct an average uh, that would be a reasonable summation of all the information. And then everything I'm saying should be applied uh, to the uh, to, to that average as if it were just one study. You can think of, of the expert who does such a thing as kind of creating their own meta-study, and then we're just applying all the same logic to the meta-study. Oh, cool. Okay, that totally makes sense. Okay, okay. So, so Jonah, in, in closing, right, I am 100% sold by your argument that based on what we say courts are supposed to be doing in the circumstances you describe, that you're right that this is how they should be dealing with this kind of evidence based on that standard. So I'm wondering your thoughts on like in a kind of bigger picture sense or in a normative sense, what does that tell us about how courts should be thinking about evidence or this kind of evidence, or maybe even any kind of evidence in, in that context? I mean, does it tell us that yes, they should make this choice or does it tell us, well, we should think about the nature of the choice that's being made and why we're making it in that way and kind of think about what we're trying to accomplish under the circumstances? Well, you asked the hardest question. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I, I think that um, I, I, so if I put on my cynical economist hat, uh, what I know a lot of people would say to me is, Come on, these these folks don't know how to think about these complex issues. Uh, in a lot of cases, the effects of choosing one standard or another are really hard to determine anyway, um, because you know they're going to affect how many cases are brought and which cases are brought, and all of those things go into figuring out what the right standard is. And why do you want to go and upset the apple cart? We have a kind of tacit understanding that even if this isn't what we're doing now isn't quite right, at least it's a you know at least it's standard driven and uh, you know, I've heard all of these points when I presented the paper uh, at various workshops and, and talked to, to, to folks about them. Um, I think there's something compelling about some of those points. Uh, but at the end of the day, I guess I'm enough of a legal scholar and I take the law seriously enough that I think if we say we're doing the preponderance standard and we say that's the standard to which parties should be held, I have a really hard time with the idea that, uh, that we should apply uh, a standard that's just radically different from that. Uh, in practice. Um, and it's led, I think, to a lot of confusion in the courts and uh, judges saying a lot of things that are hard to uh, hard to feel good about. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, okay, um, who's going to fix it? I have a discussion in the paper about the circumstances and under which um, the, the substantive standard of evidence could be adjusted by uh, courts, federal courts, at least, uh, operating through their, uh, their common law powers. And it's, it's a wider set of places than you might think. Uh, so for instance, I think that there would be nothing wrong with the uh, Supreme Court uh, and failing that with, with courts of appeals. Uh, in the meantime, announcing uh, standards uh, for securities uh, litigation, uh, standards of evidence that are, uh, that are different from, uh, from the preponderance standard, um, which is de facto what happened, for example, in the Halliburton uh, case on its most recent trip uh, uh, and its post- on remand after its most recent trip to uh, the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I, I think if courts were honest about what they're doing and why, that would be okay with me. Personally, I think particularly in specialized areas like securities, I actually think the better thing would be to have folks who have the technical training to understand what they're doing and, and also are uh, are um, potentially responsible to, to democratic 
uh, or at least, you know, if not directly to democratic considerations to, to those who are responsible, responsive to them, uh, to be making these kinds of decisions and making them in a principled way that's transparently described. So you're probably at this point either wildly confused about what I'm saying or you know exactly <laughs> what I'm saying, um, which is that we should have agencies be doing this um, mm. with uh, with experts, um, you know, who are trained in the methodology stuff and are able to to, to figure out what, what are the effects of different standards or at least estimate and predict them. Uh, and then we ought to have uh, we ought to have the you know, responsible folks within the agencies take the uh, the technical advice from uh, the experts that I just described and figure out what they think is is the best standard. And they ought to promulgate regs that say that uh, I say that in the absence of any real confidence that Congress could be expected to get any of these things right on a, you know, on an area by area basis. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty unimpressed with Congress's technical uh, expertise on these kinds of issues or, or its capacity to deploy what it does have, um, you know, as a result of the, the, um, the, the state of our, our politics. Uh, but I think agencies could possibly do a pretty good job at it. Um, and uh, I think if I were choosing, that's what I would, would choose. Um, probably second place would be, uh, you know, some sort of advisory committee through the Rules Enabling Act uh, process. That would not work because it's substantive law, but uh, but if the courts were to, you know, to to try and get some sort of expert advice and then make overtly substantive law de- determinations uh, on that basis, uh, on the basis of those kinds of recommendations, that strikes me as an interesting idea. But really, then that's just courts operating like agencies. And, and you know, there's a million reasons why folks might be bothered by that. So I, I personally would choose the, the agencies uh, uh, as the locus of those decisions. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jonah, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure having you on the program. And um, I'm just so pleased we were able to address so many of the rich, complex, and important points you make in this paper. Well, thanks so much, Brian. It's been a, a pleasure to, to talk to you. And um, you, you asked lots of great questions and, and uh, plenty of the hard ones. So I, uh, this was, this was really good, uh, a really good workout for me. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work with you. Hello, this is Beverly Garland. The Federal Trade Commission asks you to look beyond the smiling faces and super promises because the FTC knows that some advertising can be misleading and deceptive. So don't believe everything you see or hear. Beware of extravagant promises and unsupported claims. Check it out before you buy. Shop wisely. You'll save money. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.